What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Solve for Why vlogcast. This is episode number 34. I'm here, joined by... What the fuck is that doing here? Joined by my gracious cohort, Nick Howard. Fresh back from a European vacation. And a lot of spaghetti. Spaghetti? Is that why you're fat? I basically just ate linguine for three weeks straight in Italy, and then... Uh... Spain was mostly steak and wine, but didn't didn't help the diet from that point on. Bulking, bulking season. I mentioned briefly that this is my strategy. I leverage an obese period, and then uh, at the point at which I can't take myself seriously in the mirror anymore, I <laughs> I begin getting back in shape. When I used to live with Dan O'Brien, he he was notorious for this. Like, I, I people have fucked up minds, man. They work in mysterious ways, but like he was notorious for this, uh, like binging. And I, I was a part of it too. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it was like one of those things where like, once you start, it's just the fuck it mechanism sets in. Mm. it's just like, okay, you're going to binge. But like, he could never reset unless it was a Monday. <laughs> so like, if the binge started on Wednesday, it was going to carry through till Monday. It's always just like, yeah, new week, going to start fresh. Yeah, there's something in the mind that seems to just like need to set that switch point. And for me, it's worse. It's like it starts in November and then it doesn't end until the new year. Right. It's just like, oh, well, fuck it till the new year. Are you the type to like set uh, like goals or, or resolutions at the new year? Um, I'm, I'm more careful about that than I used to be. And my goals are just totally control oriented goals. Yeah. Like, um, like for sim simply put, like my goal right now is just to like not miss a day at the gym. For, for three months. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I wasn't really speaking to the framework of goals, although I think that you're making a very valid point. To, people are, are, are far too often uh, setting goals that are arbitrary. Like, I want to make $100,000. Yeah, like that would be one that you don't have control over. Right, exactly. Yeah. Something as simple as, uh, I want to get my body fat down to this and weigh this much, mm -hmm. I would argue is not as controllable as it seems. I think it is over a certain amount of time, but to put a time limit on that is kind of... Um, verging on not effective yeah i think it matters like how knowledgeable you are so like if you yeah. know that you can be x percent at y weight then it becomes a much more tangible goal there's definitely much less variance in like losing weight than there is in making money in poker but i think there actually still is some variance to it depending oh we're we're super subjected to uh our genes and our dna and predispositions to where we carry fat and all these other hurdles I've been trying to overcome for the last two fucking decades. What's new with you in the last two months? Oh man, who knows? I don't I don't get out of the house. I'm just stuck in this room every goddamn day making content. Speaking of, I don't know if you heard, uh, we are nominated for a I think they changed the name of it. It's like the Global Poker Awards now. I just caught wind of all that i opened twitter for the first time in like a week and saw all the fuss about everything going on yeah i don't really understand it it looks like it's a it's something people care a lot about though or certain people at least <laughs> well so i i assume you're alluding to the doug thing that's what i was seeing the most of because yeah. there was just the most posts on that yeah i mean i think like his his rant is uh relevant in the sense that obviously award shows are very subjective in nature and oftentimes don't recognize what is quote unquote best but i don't think anybody's of the impression that that's not the case and the irony is for the last three years i made a joke about this on my timeline that seemingly nobody got 
But for the last three years, Doug has been nominated for Vlogger of the Year. And he's never done a vlog. Ever. Mm. And so like, for the last three years, he would take it upon himself to point out the, the hypocrisy of the fact that he's nominated for Vlogger of the Year and how laughable the awards are. Well, now it comes full circle and he's not nominated for anything, but specifically not nominated for Vlogger of the Year. And he goes on a tirade explaining like what the views are of the people in the Vlogger of the Year category and how he surpasses all of them and belongs in it. And it's just like, what are we talking about here? I don't, I don't understand how we've gotten to this point. Well, I saw your post, but I didn't understand it because I didn't have the context of, of Apparently, what a said. lot of people were lacking the context or, you know, we just all have very short memories. But uh, to me, like, it's, it was just kind of funny. And I literally made the joke because it's his joke, right? He's the one who every year is like, I, don't, I shouldn't be in this category. I don't belong. Mm. And so it was like he finally, quote unquote, gets snubbed out of that category. And I just made a joke of it. And then the next day, he's on this like 12 tweet storm where it's just like, I can't believe I'm not nominated for anything. I put out X amount of content with Y amount of views and yada, yada, yada. And it's just like, oh, man, we are we're just all grabbing at the low hanging fruit at this point. Yeah, I have a general rule of thumb just observing that type of stuff that anytime somebody's on like a manic tweet rant, there's probably something else going on, some other imbalance driving it than just proving a point. Oh, I actually think it's incentive-based. Well, I think his his main point was that like people need to see, people need to know that this is rigged. Yeah. Like, And I, I understand that part, but it clearly wasn't fully separated from his need to gain validation or whatever. Yeah. Like, it just and, came and, across really douchey. Yeah, and I'm not even so sure that, like, he necessarily means what he says. The timing to me is just, like, really convenient. He just put out... A, they Upswing just launched a new course. They're trying to drive eyes. They're trying, And this is the most relevant topic that happened on Monday. So it's just, like, creating a lot of churn by uh, through backlash is just really good business metrics. I mean, I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with how it's all going down. It, it's not about right or wrong. It's just like, why? And like, I can see how Doug feels slighted. And um, all I'm saying is like, his behavior indicates that he feels slighted. Yeah, yeah. And it might not be the most objective way to try to make that point. Oh, yeah. yeah because people yeah. are just going to, it was like the thing that I was seeing uh, when I texted in the group chat yesterday, the day before that, like, somebody showed me Prolod Freeman's Instagram or, or his Twitter and it's just like super negative and ranty. And I told you that like it, I, I wish I never saw it because I used to really have high opinions of Prolod and I thought he was like a super balanced yeah. dude. Yeah. And then like, it just seems like you only need to read and it could just be somebody's in a bad mood. Like, you know sure. what I mean? It's, we all have phases, but like in general, the way that I try, like I just did these free consults, for instance, uh, I put this thing up that I was like, I'll, I'll give an hour for anybody who wants to do a, a free one hour mindset career consult. And I took most people, but there was some people that I just didn't take because my, my 20 second assessment is to click on somebody's profile and scroll through and see if they're leaving negative comments more regular than com sure. than positive yeah, comments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just a thing. Let's move on. Well, wait, wait, before we move on, mm. is there a 5% chance you want to suck a dick? How does that have anything to do with any? That of was this? what Prolab was ranting about. Is that uh, all men are bisexual? I liked Marley's response to that. She came in and said, "This is the most elaborate come out." Oh I've yeah, ever seen. <laughs> that was, that was I really that was gold. Funny. I thought that was funny. No, no. What what the post that he made was? Uh, have you ever watched gay porn? Because if you've watched gay porn, your pupils probably dilate right. because yeah, you're yeah, aroused. Yeah. 
Well, that was one of many. This was like this a four day long off the deep end type shit. Yeah, he's he's on one, man. He's uh he's progress. Um <laughs> I don't even know how to segue out of this. <laughs> Are you intimidated at all by the great one staring over your shoulder right now? No, I mean luckily I'm not even that into sports, so I don't really have any real history with him. That is Troy Palamalu, baby. Was he the guy that uh, performed the Immaculate Reception? Jesus Christ, man. That was in the <laughs> 70s, and that was Franco Harris. Um, all right, so just to get uh, a little business out of the way, um, we are currently running a half off for any new subscribers. So if you haven't checked out Software YTV yet, or you've noticed uh, Poker Out Loud on YouTube and you want to see more of those seasons, uh, as well as training videos, we come out with a new course every single month. Head over to tv.solvefory.io and use the code S4YHALF to get half off your first month. Uh, also, the team, uh, you can't make it, unfortunately, but we're all heading to Austin in March. I heard March. things about that. I'm pretty pumped about this, actually. What are these Texas poker rooms? Uh, honestly, I'm just having my eyes open to it, but it all sounds like a dream world. Like it's so wild. It's like a different type of poker room. So they're like they're, they're these card houses, similar to like I guess what California uh, runs. And I'm not sure if they have licenses or not, but I know that they did win uh, a court case where they were briefly shut down. Um, and effectively, I think they just charge a seat fee. So some some places you just charge. It's like a door charge, like a bar, like a cover, basically. And others, I think they charge you to rent the seat. Um, I, and I don't know how much, like 10 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, something to that nature. Uh, and then they just operate. So the one we're going to is Texas Card House in Austin. Uh, they have 13 tables. They regularly get like one, three, two, five. Um, they're going to have five, 10 while we're there. And they're running a $500 tournament with a 50K guarantee on, uh, on the final day. So we're going March 6th to 8th. I'm actually going from the 5th to the 11th. I just want to, I've never been, I want to get weird. So when you say you buy your seat, you're actually reserving the seat that you're going to be sitting in to play. Yeah, I, I mean it's just like a rental charge. It's effectively like time. Okay, I got it. Um, but I don't think they can technically call it time because, uh, you know, like oh, regulation I see, I see, or whatever. I see TOS, all that. Yeah. So how many of you are going? Uh, nine of us. All solve for Y guys. Yeah. So what's their play that you guys are just basically props in their casino? No, they just—it's their fifth anniversary of being open. And they just wanted to have like a big bash of a weekend. Uh, so they're having us come through. We're hosting games on Friday the 8th, or Friday the 6th, Saturday the 7th, and then uh, a tournament on the 8th. Um, and yeah, effectively, we're just going to like... Lag treat it up. Like, yeah. I, you know, they're like, hey, who's going to come splash in these games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I get it. I, get I know it. who to get. Uh, so yeah, like we're going to vlog the whole experience. We're weighing our options right now between two houses uh, to rent. One is on Lake Travis. And it's literally like, imagine uh, a houseboat that got converted into uh, like a floating dock. Okay, but it has like this rope swing that's three stories high. It has like kayaks, canoes, all that fun stuff, a fishing pier, a fire pit. It's awesome, but the inside is just like not. But it's literally on the It's water. literally on the water, yeah. Um, and it seems like it's gonna be a great time. Or, we have like this house that's on a full acre, has like a massive swimming pool, hot tub, just all the amenities you could ever want. Which one do you think my group of guys wants? I think you guys trend towards the more 
I think you want the more volatile option, which would be the first. I think the group might want number two. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. I, I want to get out on the lake and do some shit. They want to sit in the hot tub and not do some shit. <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to wear me down, though, because uh, the fact that I'm going to be there for a week, I don't know if I can live in an effective 1,200-square-foot cabin with 10 other people. We did it. Yeah. Well, yeah. it wasn't 10, but no. we survived. Yeah. So what was uh what was this trip to Europe all about? Uh this was a team trip that was European based. So generally the US ones we get to see more of our American players and the European ones we get to see more of our European guys. Um all CFP dudes and the first time that we were able to uh coordinate it with the new MTT division, which is basically all non Americans, mm -hmm. South American and European mostly. Um so it was good. We did three days with the cash players, and then we had one day off, and we did three more days with the tournament guys. Um, I went into it pretty relaxed just in terms of with the cash. It was just like I wanted to really get more settled with the players just in terms of uh, building more of a sense that this is a relaxed community space, and I had some things that I wanted feedback on just in terms of um, how we're building out this new network that okay. is going to be the graduate network of the company. The idea behind the graduate network is that I wanted something that the students could look forward to after their tenure. So after your one-year contract ends, assuming you've, meet, you've met the prerequisites, and there's a few of them, uh, you basically enter the graduate network and you have benefits thereafter, okay. as long as you remain an active participant and whatever and contribute. So when they, when they scale up to the graduate level, are they signing a new contract? They can if they want, but the, pre the, the prerequisite for being in the graduate network is that you've completed a one-year contract at okay. least. Right. Once they're there, I just see it being sort of like a networking hub of guys that are vetted, meaning we've done business with these guys for a while. Like mm -hmm. if anybody posts action, like this is one of the main things I think you get a benefit out of is like anybody who wants to buy or sell action, it's a group where you know that like pretty much everybody's vouched for because we've yeah. done consistent business with mm -hmm. these guys for a while where anybody who's in like the crypto threads and all that shit knows right. like it's the main barrier to to being able to use them fluidly it's just like not knowing who the fuck you're dealing with yeah, at yeah. the time yeah exactly there's other stuff too like um we're going to get into it but one of the ideas i took from that book infinite game was that apple did this thing where they were one of the first con one of the first companies to offer their members the opportunity to buy stock mm -hmm. in the company yeah um, and some other benefits that don't really make sense on paper up front if you just calculate the cost, but end up paying the company back uh, through making it less expensive to hire new uh, contracts because you get more contract retention and all these types of things. So one of those, like the easiest one that I can equate to the poker player is just the poker player has the ability to invest back into the M the MTT side of the stable or the cash side of the stable. Right. So just like a basic example, if for instance, the company runs out of money to stake upper division players for the main event, which probably will happen every year because yeah. it's just the volatility Everybody is crazy. Right. Um, we open that up to the network and guys can start buying shares of players that they know are, are winning and trusted and it's regulated by the company. So, just a lot of uh, value arbitrage type things that you can start to do when you have a bunch of winners who uh, are all on board with combining resources and, and their specific value 
uh, sets. So that was one of the things that the trip was based on in the cash side. I just wanted to open up the conversation because the easiest way that I'm figuring out slowly to figure out the easiest way to figure out what's best for your company is to actually just put your ear to the ground and let the players tell you. Sure. If especially something like this, it's like in terms of network benefits, there's no one better to ask than the players themselves. Yeah. And the conversation just basically becomes what would you guys want in an ideal world? Yeah. And if a good enough idea comes up that's that's feasible, we work with it. It's different on the training side. Uh, it's it's a little bit more the coach's responsibility to say, yeah, that might be a that's kind of a good idea in terms of how to train content, but that's not as relevant as this. Right. When you're when you're just trying to ask what people want in terms of Well, you have to benefits, streamline the training side. You don't really have to streamline the wants and needs. Exactly. The yeah. wants and needs are like way more face value. Right. Like they're yeah. just telling you straight up, like exactly. this would be awesome. Yeah. So the cash part was more about that. And then the tournament part uh, was the first time that Hunt and I unveiled the the mindset course that we've been working on. Um, and that was fun. It was the first time he and, he and I were in a room together basically doing uh, back and forth seminar type format. So we got to test it out. We saw what worked, what didn't work. Um, and it's going to be something that we open up to the public around summer. So I'll say more about that when we have it more fleshed out. But I'm pretty excited about that format. Yeah, I mean, I know you guys have been working on this for a while, uh, and it's something that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a topic that that hits home with me. I think that you know, in a lot of instances, it's probably the the major barrier preventing people from um, either scaling to higher stakes or breaking through the profit barrier in the game. Um, you know, there's just a certain level of arrogance that's almost necessary to begin playing poker to begin with and until that's like kind of stripped away and you actually acknowledge like well i actually don't know anything and i need to start from square one uh it's really challenging and then once you do acknowledge that now you have a whole new set of hurdles mm -hmm. where you are trying to conceptually understand variance yeah. in all its parts and that's that's a big challenge without some mental work the most visceral example i've ever seen of what you just said occurred on the team trip actually we had a 50 nl player who's struggling he came from a flight about eight to 12 months ago type of guy who you can tell is just really intelligent and just for some reason something's holding him back he just can't get off the ground mm -hmm. now there's clearly mindset issues there but what i love more than anything lately is to be able to look at a player's mindset issues and show him how that directly manifests in a technical leak yeah and for us on the cash game side, that's extremely simple at this point because we've moved through that uh, domain of complexity and we're now on the other side of simplicity. If you don't remember talking about that, we talked about that probably two podcasts ago, maybe yeah, three. Two, I think. Um, probably the most important uh, revolution in, in the company so far. It just makes things so much simpler. So to put this into context... Um, Night three of the cash game retreat, and I think it's just going to become a, th a thing. We always go out to the bar, and then that always turns into some sort of drunken, like yeah, ridiculous night. As it should. And it's especially fun to watch the young kids. Uh, so the young European guys just like totally bond out uh, on a drunken uh, club night, and it's just, it's it's extremely fun to to be around that type of energy. But basically, end of the night comes around, and we're leaving the club. And a spontaneous conversation starts up between me and one of the Division Four players. This is a French kid who was in the same plight, the same flight as the the 50 NL struggler that I'm gonna present in a moment. Mm -hmm. He and I are just sort of tailing behind the group on the street, 
And the, the conversation started off something like he wanted to know what it, what the difference is when you actually are able to get the upper hand in a heads up battle with a good reg. He wanted to know like what the experience of that actually feels like. Um, but somehow along this conversation, the 50 and L players sort of heard it um, or somehow he got involved and the conversation developed into the 50 and L player feeling like no matter what we say, the higher division guys, he doesn't feel like it translates to his situation right. because we're speaking from a level that's above him almost. And what he's dealing with is he's, he's down at 50 and L looking up at all the other players. And this is like how he's framing it in his yeah, words. Yeah. It's like, I feel like I'm looking up at better regs and you guys seem to have this perspective where you're almost looking down at regs. And it's not like a, I don't perceive it as a value judgment thing. I just perceive it as like, there's no more fear of the reg. Right, that, exactly. That, that's the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So this persists and you can tell the 50 and L player is getting more and more frustrated up until the point where the D4 player steps in. This is a French kid. I love this kid. Like super humble accent. Like something about the French accent is just like extremely humble when it speaks English. I don't know what it is, but I love it. And I have this on recording. I might put it out. Um, Basically, the French kid tells the 50 and L player, and these two are friends. They've gone through program together. Yeah. French kid took off. He's at high stakes now. 50 and L kid's still at 50 and L. French kid says to 50 and L guy, bro, like, I don't know how to make this any simpler for you than this. You're overcomplicating it. You need to start calling more. And it was just like that. It was like this slice that the kid, the 50 and L kid, you could tell it hit him like right in the throat. Yeah, because like, he was just manically scrambling for answers. We're all drunk, um, and I'm just watching this from the side. On so I'm like, this is fucking beautiful because what's happening here is that this 50 and L kid is hearing something more directly because it's coming from his friend who he went through program with. Right, and he saw this kid develop. Where when I say it, it feels a little bit disconnected because he hasn't seen my journey. For sure. Um, so basically, what what I realized through all this is that. There is definite value in building a community, cultivating a, a community that's connected on the level of peer-to-peer -peer training. Um, and I forget how I, I got into this tangent because it was something that you said that, that sort of sparked that when I said this is the most visceral example of this that I've seen. It was something about uh, the fact that certain regs feel like they're stuck at limits because they're looking up at better regs and, and the mindset shift of beginning to see that you all you really need to do is figure out where the market is trending and then consistently capitalize on the imbalance of the market. And that was what this French kid told the 50 and L struggler in simplest form. He said, bro, you're overcomplicating it. The difference between me when I look at that reg and you when you look at that reg is that the, the crusher doesn't see him as a different reg than all the other regs. Right. Like this French kid's perspective is so simple and it's why he was able to rise up so fast. He's just like, once I saw that pretty much all the regs are the same, he stopped playing that game in his head. Right. I, I remember, to bring it back, what uh, brought this up, I was basically saying that like a lot, of mindset, it, a lot of mindset issues develop whenever you do finally get humbled to the point where you say, like, I actually don't know anything about this game. And then your challenge becomes accruing knowledge versus comprehending variance. And from the sounds of things, the reason why the French kid is so successful is because he has confidence in what he knows 
by comparison to the framework of variance. So he doesn't really ever question, am I doing something wrong or is this just variance? He just has a pretty good heuristic to say like, I know where I'm making errors and I'll fix them versus like, I also know when I'm just downswinging because of sheer and utter variance. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I'm so surprised that you just brought that up because I thought that was my, up until this moment, I thought I had that original thought on mm -hmm. this trip. But apparently you're thinking that same thing too and maybe even thought it before me. So let's talk about it. Okay. This idea that the real edge that a, let's take a heads up match because it's the easiest, uh, simplest format. Somewhere in in these trip recordings, because I just basically press record and let the guys talk at lunch, and sometimes we we catch gold, and I'm I'm thinking about just releasing it all for free on Instagram. Somewhere along the way, we start talking about heads up matches and the difference between the guy who's in charge of the match and the guy who's basically self sabotaging. Mm -hmm. And what I came to was what I thought was uh, original uh, perspective, which you just now uh, said yourself. But it goes like this. The difference between a really, really good player and a player who struggles in a heads-up match is that the really, really good player is able to identify if he's losing because he's getting owned or if it's variance. Right. The moment that you aren't sure if you're getting owned or if it's just bad card distribution is the moment where your game just goes to total shit. I, and I'll take it one step further. I think that... Uh, the real destructive mindset is the one that is sure that it's variance whenever he has no heuristic in order to make that judgment call. It's so weird because it could. I feel like it could almost go both ways. Like if you're sure it's variance to the point where you're too sure, it's clearly bad. Uh, well, I'm also saying it in the in the context of where he doesn't have the proper heuristic to make that call. To make the call that it's actually variance. Yes. Yeah. So too just, often, just to clear it up for the audience, when you say to make the call, you mean like, to make the judgment call yes, the judgment that this call. is variance. Right. Because like too often when people are at that stripped down phase where they're just like, okay, I really need to retool and learn it, et cetera, et cetera. They'll lean heavily into the fact that all the negative outcomes are variance. Mm. And they're not prepared yet to make that decision. You know, they don't have, they haven't acquired enough data, be it uh, tangible or intangible to actually be able to quantify like what true variance is, how it's going to impact you versus like and i see it go the other way too like i coach a lot of people who are you know in the one two two five realm and they're trying to progress through but they can't get over the hump of uh either taking way too much ownership of things that are vastly out of their control and that comes from a risk averse mindset versus chalking everything up to being unlucky high variance uh you know woe is me type of mindset mm. and that comes from like the almost victim type mentality yeah and where that crosses over is a nuclear explosion so there's like i guess two ways to be unhealthy in your misperception of what is truly variance yeah and then i would argue also or add to it that on the other end of the spectrum it's almost an immediate indicator that you don't understand variance if you think you're getting owned yeah yeah, that's actually very true. It's like a weird thing where it's almost like, you know, in mindset, how people say success barriers and, and fear of failure are different yeah. things, but they end up actually sort of being the same thing. Yeah. This is sort of a similar thing where like, it seems like there's two different polarities. This, this question mark of whether or not you're getting owned or this question mark of whether or not variance is the reason that you're losing. And if you, if you collapse too certainly onto either one it actually shows that you don't understand the whole equation yeah i agree so you have to remain in this sort of like inconclusive confidence mm -hmm. that 
information is developing in real time and I trust myself to discern whether or not I'm running bad. And I also trust myself to be self-aware enough not to collapse into this idea that this guy's owning me and he just sees through everything that I'm doing. Right. Both of those are super self-sabotaging. Uh, I think the I think your own personal language to yourself matters a lot too. When you get out of the the framework of losing a big pot and then saying to yourself that's unlucky, even if it it is even if it is in fact unlucky, like you get boat over boat or mm. some cooler takes place, it's like well think in the grander scope of things, right? Zoom the zoomed out perspective. Everything is going to occur at some relative frequency over iterations. So like, it's not unlucky. It just is. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's was, a hard uh, thing to conceptualize. It's in the, real time. It might be the hardest thing. Yeah. It's funny. I keep almost writing this blog. Uh, so I have like entries just that I've written partial entries. And one of the reasons that I haven't even posted anything is that I just keep going back and forth on what the title should be. And it's just like it's just so ridiculous. But yeah, like one of the titles for this blog was going to be surprisingly likely events and it's exactly sort of hinting at what you just said that like right. we all think that like this thing that is the result of our run bad is some sort of horrible anomaly that only happens to us and like right. realistically like this thing is inevitably going it's to actually happen. like super trivial it's actually like yeah going to happen mm -hmm. like almost inevitable okay. uh so uh i actually want to kind of tie infinite game into uh you know, we kind of started this on the onset of like, you know, are you a goal setter at the beginning of the year or do you view January 1st as an arbitrary date kind of thing? You, di you didn't really answer. You dodged it a little. Is it like a January 1 thing where you're just like, okay, new, well, in this new case, year, it was new like, me. In this case, it was like when I when I touch back down in America. Okay, that's thing. fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because like I'm personally like of the mindset that like January 1 is pretty arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a part of me that like, it's like, okay, everybody else, all the energy around me is collectively pushing forward harder. Yeah. So that's a good indicator for me to like turn it up another notch. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I goal set all year long. Uh, so to like think that like the first week of the year is going to be whenever I, you know, profoundly know what's going to happen mm -hmm. is, is difficult. But I do like the idea of gravitating to like big picture things. And uh, one of my big picture goals this year is to stop complaining about the community and the marketplace itself, uh, poker, basically. And start doing something about it. And I've been beating around the bush for this for a long time. And I think that, you know, the collective answer to a lot of what ails this community is a lack of cohesiveness, specifically at the top. And I've spoken about this a lot at length in previous vlogcasts. But I think that we need to collaborate more. I think we need to uh, coordinate a lot more. And your trip kind of reminds me of this. You know, you being able to step back and see guys that you've helped escalate through and others who are stuck mm. just kind of um, self-perpetuate and help one another. Like that's a level of, of collaboration and coordination. They don't have to do that. You know, they don't have to be a team. This is such a cutthroat industry. It's so, it's so alone and isolated. And, you know, I think that that has spilled over far too much into the media, into the content creation, into the training and all these other metrics. And, the vast majority of the community is desperate for for like some level of belonging. Mm. That's the first step to like getting over mindset. So Infinite Game really uh, triggered and hit home with me in the sense that, you know, I, I, I'm a huge Simon Sinek fan. I've read all of his books. Hell, he's part inspiration for the title of this company. Um, but and, and despite the fact that I think I do carry a long view in a lot of ways, what Infinite Game kind of portrayed to me is that uh, it doesn't matter if you carry the long view. 
uh, so much as what does matter is identifying the people who are trying to play a finite game. And that was where it kind of like sprung to me. It's like, yeah, like that's the issue here. This community is playing a finite game. They're all waiting for the other shoe to drop. They're waiting for that final solver to come out that's going to break poker forever. Everybody's like super nihilistic and seemingly setting themselves up for an exit strategy that almost nobody has has figured out yet, right? Everybody talks about like, whenever I get to X amount of wealth, I'm going to do, you know, this, that, or the other. But almost nobody leaves poker non-broke. You know, we're seeing it a little bit more. We're seeing the best of the best from like my generation, like Gelfond and others move on to business and accrue enough wealth that they can be impactful. But that's rare, right? Like they're, they're a fraction of the percentage of people who started playing in 2003. So, um, you know, I guess like what I kind of want to talk about or the framework that I want to operate off of is um, how are you currently using that big picture view uh, that, uh, of playing a quote unquote infinite game to operate within the uh, Poker Detox Coaching for Profits? And then how do you see that kind of expanding outwardly, um, you know, either to other projects within the industry or, or beyond? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'll connect it to performance because I think that's the easiest way to have a tangible conversation around it. This might sound abstract to some people, but I actually messaged this to my partner, Gabe, like a few days ago. I made the comment that there's two ways to enhance performance. The first one is showing people that adopting a data-driven strategy and not deviating from it is the main way that you can get consistently better results. Mm -hmm. That's tangible. And yeah. like, I think most people get that. If you had statistical vision over the market, you should use it. Right. And you should probably not deviate from it and try to do better because we see exception seeking as the main cause of people leaking. The second one that I said is aligned with the infinite vision and it feels more abstract, but I actually think it's far more tangible paradoxically. It goes like this. I almost want to just read it verbatim, but I'll just say increasing performance has a direct correlation with how much each player feels a sense of belonging and has an opportunity to contribute to the development of the company. Yeah. So there's this weird thing that happens in the example on the street and that drunken night was a really good, um, a really good vis visual of what's going on there where because these two guys have known each other and progressed together, there's like this natural sense of not only being able to give back once you're at the top, but like more of a connection and a, and a desire to contribute back. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that comes from being on the same journey as someone who you're looking back at somebody who was struggling with something that you overcame and you actually for the first time have the tools to help that person. I think it's in our human nature to derive fulfillment out of being able to contribute back in that way. Yeah. And there's something that happens there that creates some sort of slipstream energy in the company where now your better students, your more progressed students are able to basically like throw a hand back to the guys that are struggling and say like, come on, like catch up, we're going and to do it in a supportive way not in a way that's controlling or forceful, sure. which is what the executive team really doesn't have the capacity to do. Like the execs can only force so much before we're doing too much. And there's actually not much. There's actually very little force that we can use as coaches before we're doing too much. Well, the top should be innovating, right? Your, your main goal at the, at the top of the hierarchy 
is to remain innovative so that that trickle down effect can take place and you are empowering those at the next level beneath you and then so on. I agree. I think the, the role of the top is to make sure the course is designed and optimized as much as possible on the technical level and provides enough structure for players to move through it in a streamlined fashion. And then uh, there's a second layer of structures that allows for contribution to aim backwards towards the lower division players. Mm -hmm. Stuff like peer mentoring is involved in this and, yeah. and it's all good things. Um, but it never became so clear to me than on this night. And Gabe and I were just looking at each other standing in the street. Like he knew I was recording. I just had a big smile on my face. Like this is fucking gold right now. Like I can't wait. This is going to help so many people if we release this. Um, and I'll throw a picture up on screen. Uh, it, it's showing the end of the night with these guys where I think it's the two of them passed out face down on the on the floor. <laughs> and it, it's a nice cap to a seemingly contradictory approach to training in, in the infinite model. I'm not saying go out and get wasted with your friends is a good idea, but there is something about that night out with the boys for whatever reason that seems to just uh, bring the entire retreat together. Well, it gets you off the island. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think everybody at some point in their poker journey feels like they're on an island that's uh, rapidly flooding and, and they're just moments away from drowning. So it's like it, it does uh, kind of like bridge the relationship element that's so lacking in this community. You know, uh, it's so hard not to be a loner um, and make it because those who are like super dependent from day one often just fail mm -hmm. because, you know, this is a game rooted in problem solving. It's only you out there making the decisions. Nobody's going to be there to hold your hand or to coach you or co coerce you into uh, making the proper ones. But the support necessary to deal with variants uh, from a mental standpoint and an emotional standpoint is so critical. I mean, I, I would say like maybe 80% of any success that, I've, uh, that I can attribute, I can attribute back to having a really sound foundational support system, albeit a small one, and I kept it that way on purpose. You know, I, I was never one to make friends in the community, but you know, it was a small but yet reliable, intimate one. You know, it, these are guys that I've known my entire life. They're never going to abandon me. Um, and I think just to take it one step further from like, you know, zooming out a little bit from the specific poker example, but from a business example, I think the major difference between the finite game and the infinite game is just good act or, or good faith versus bad faith. And I think like the the businesses that align with the good faith model, where they're only concerned with value propositions, and they understand that if they fulfill what their value props are, then they'll be profitable. They're the ones who have the big picture mindset that are able to move big pieces, are able to have or impart a big change on any sort of industry. And that's really like what I want to align myself with this year. I want to try to get like a collection of, you know, for lack of a better word, thought leaders throughout the entire industry. There are so many niche umbrellas, you know, be it different game types, uh, MTTs versus cash, vlogging, uh, content creation, whatever, like all of these things exist on their own little island right now and just aren't really being nurtured by any collective group. And I just feel like there's so much value that can be added versus like the, the bad faith actors who are literally in it for bottom line and they're out there, you know, creating churn, pumping out marketing, just trying to fleece like every single cent that they possibly can before just abandoning the, the, the community mm -hmm. as a whole. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that 
essentially like at, at everyone's core i think everybody is in good faith mm-hmm. the problem is that there's a lack of perspective in business in general yeah around h- how much more value there actually is to align yourself in a in a long run good faith approach yeah i mean really what's happening is that because there's a lack of macro long-term perspective people think the better or only option is to engage in more manipulative short-term activity right. competitive activity is manipulative by nature like, right there's like, no even way if you around didn't this. set out that path that ultimately becomes the best business strategy once you decide to be a lone wolf that's why like i think it's funny when people act like you know the the infinite model is like a philanthropy model well in a sense you could say it is it's like you give disproportionate amounts of value up front without expectation right but just because you don't have expectation doesn't mean you aren't also aware that that comes back tenfold in the long run. For sure. That's a hard paradox to actually explain to somebody because people think like, oh, wait, so what you're saying is you're giving disproportionate amount of value up front just so you get it back 10 years from now. Right. That's still manipulative. It's like, no, that won't work. Right. Like you actually have to care about what you're giving up front in a very authentic way. And I think the only way you do that is to align yourself with something that you're passionate about that you can do for free without having that thought into your head that like oh this is going to pay off 10 years from now that's yeah. why i'm doing this yeah and, and I, I guess that's uh, not to like you know blow your company's title up but i think that really is what the solve for why type of the value of a solve for why inquiry is that it can show you what you actually will be able to do from a pure place so that you can do that thing long enough to actually play the infinite game yeah and then the results and the the success from that is just a buy. It's literally a byproduct, right? Yeah, and and honestly, like you know, that's that's where uh, I've always been coming from with this. Uh, I didn't start this company to get rich. That's just not going to be the final outcome. If I wanted to do that, I would have got into dietary supplements or something with a billion dollar industry that you know you can carve out a little niche edge in. Um, for me, this is like a platform where uh, you know the, it, it allows me to hone certain life skills that are gonna be transferable forever into other big markets. If you can get to a level where you are capable of coordinating with others, capable mm-hmm. of being a part of a group of leaders, not just a solo person, uh, capable of teaching and passing on knowledge and things like that, that, those are invaluable skill sets. And I'm not talking monetarily speaking, right? They're just going to better your life and those the lives of those around you moving forward. And to me, that was like always the backbone of wanting to do something like this. Um, and being able to innovate on top of that is really the driving force. It's just like, I just want to throw as much shit against the wall as possible, see what sticks and like hear the criticism that comes back, internalize it, try to figure out what of it is in good faith, what of it's in bad faith, and then adjust and continually push that envelope until we finally arrive at something that's going to move the needle. So how do you navigate that, that process of keeping your ear to the ground and and sort of sifting through the feedback it's hard man because like you know you you run a business it's hard to have the time but i just consume so much you know it's like i'm on run at once every day watching training videos i'm sifting through you know emails and dms and comments and everything else just trying to figure out like does this actually add value or is this detracting I'm watching and rewatching the stuff that we put out to make sure that like it's of a certain quality. Uh, you know, I'm trying to create uh, enough of an awareness where I'm not just turning a blind eye or a deaf ear 
to somebody who is saying that we're a bad actor in the industry. Mm. It's like, okay, let's talk about it. Uh, I had a couple couple things happen on on Twitter over the last few weeks. Um, and, you know, maybe they were misunderstandings. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. But uh, we released the student edition of Poker Out Loud. And uh, one of our followers was, like, blowing it up, saying how great it was. And uh, Todd Whitless, um, who hosts, I'm going to get it wrong. I think it's Poker Fraud Radio. Um, basically, like, jumped in the thread and was, like, something to the effect of, uh, I, I don't know anything about SolferWise product. And he didn't even watch the video that she was talking about. He was just like, but by the description of their Twitter profile, I could just tell that they're, or, or that I hate them already. And she was just like, you know, maybe you should give it a chance, yada, yada, yada. And he like verbatim said what the, what our tagline is or whatever. And it says something about like creating holistic strategy. And he's like, you have to admit that that's super pretentious. It's like, first of all, I think that uh, unfortunately people misunderstand language a lot. Like, I think people assign the word holistic to like healers of sorts, which is a bullshitty industry in, in a lot of ways, you know, like holistic healers mm -hmm. that are going to, you know, fix your chi and hit you with some quartz <laughs> or, or whatever. Uh, but that's not what the word means, right? It just means complete. Mm. Um, and so like, I just jumped in the thread. I was like, listen, man, uh, we would love to have you observe an academy anytime you want. If you still think the product's trash, by all means, go public with it and tell everybody. But if you if you like what you see, you know, I'd appreciate you just being honest. Uh, I, it would be nice if you had the full context, basically. And, you know, he was cool about it. He sent me a DM. He was like, I'm not in Vegas, but if, if ever I am, like, I'll stop through whatever. And then, you know, there was the whole, uh, the, the whole thing with uh, BitBee Cash or whatever. And it just sucks whenever the, the online versus live world kind of collide like this, where it's like, why don't you post your graph? Why don't you uh, show more data? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? It's like, well, because I can't. You know what I mean? It's like, I could show you what my hourly is in the 200, 400 to 1K, 2K, but it's going to be over a sample of like a thousand hours where the blinds are constantly in flux. And you're just going to say that I'm lying about my win rate mm -hmm. because I don't have actual data scraped to confirm it. Yeah, I don't want to go too deep into that, uh, the meta analysis of why someone who's asking for your results is never going to be satisfied, even if you post them. Mm -hmm. But nine out of 10 people are still going to have skepticism, no matter what they see in terms of results from you, if they don't agree with your philosophy. Yeah. It's just a thing. Yeah. It sucks because, like, the only thing that as live guys we can point to is our tournament results. And so the irony is, like, I think I have like 4.2 million in tournament earnings or something like that. And people will just be like, he bought it for way more than that. It's like my lifetime buy-ins are like barely a million dollars. I mean, no matter whatever the case, this is why I think it's just not even worth justifying yourself in that type of way because there's no end. There's literally no end to it. It's yeah. just going to end up in you feeling like you need to defend the next point of skepticism from someone. Yeah. So it kind of just goes back to like, well, what do you have if you can't prove yourself to people? Because this right. is the thing that I fundamentally realized in the last year is like, it's a really, really hard surrender to to actually come to terms with the fact that much of the business entrepreneur's life was subtly predicated on gaining validation from the masses this yeah. is just a thing and, yeah, yeah. and whether or not there are degrees to which you can come to recognition of this and you know it's always the type of thing where like you think you're done but then you get another real revelation that like oh shit like i still cared mm -hmm. enough 
to either sacrifice integrity slightly or just drift off course with what the infinite plan actually was in the first place. And I think it's probably the most valuable uh, perspective that you can cultivate is to actually see through process, like through actually trying really hard that you can never do right. And you can never do right enough to please even close to everyone. Oh yeah, that's the only thing that's kept me sane. Is like that—that's something that before the company even started was something that like Elliot and I, or Elliot and I worked on a lot. Not in the sense that uh, I was out there looking for validation from a bunch of people, but more so in the sense that like I tend to be a people pleaser. Like I want to help. I—it's I, what motivates me, right? I just always want to ensure that I'm able to employ some level of value or happiness around me. And he was like, "Listen, man." you are going to lose your mind if you try to scale your life this way and start to have any sort of outreach beyond your four little walls. And he was right. So like we poured ourselves into like that level of work so that by the time, you know, 2016, 2017 rolled around and the scrutiny started doubling back. And it's like, it's so much not easier necessarily because there's still always a part of you that like emotions involved. It's like, you know, why, why, why do you feel the need to just be uh, mean on the internet, mm. but you could be a lot more rational about it and a lot more objective and just be like, okay, I understand. Like this is happening because it's a business tactic or this is happening because uh, you know this guy can't beat 50 cent a dollar and wants to take shots at somebody who is playing, you know, the blinds are worth more than his paycheck, that type of stuff. So you start to like dig into the more human element of the internet, which is a pretty dark place, but it's also like so phenomenal in the grand scheme of, in the infinite game of things right the the internet's the most revolutionary tool that we've ever been provided and it's going to do far more good than harm in the long run i would i would say that the reason that it is so phenomenal is that it gives people the chance to have a voice with a large enough sample of their own voice that it's going to play out the way it should play out in the yeah. long run like like you your your personality whether or not you control it or not is compulsively asserting itself right online right so like over a large sample people will see your true colors yeah and there's not a value judgment around that so much as there are certain personality types and behaviors and intentions that are incentivized for good faith business yeah and there are some that are the opposite right and over enough of over enough observation of person x y and z it becomes clear who's aligned where and things actually start to get more peaceful when you recognize that. Like I spent a week on Twitter. You know that I was like, guys, I'm, I'm on fucking Twitter now. Like there's so much here that you could potentially help to correct and like reflections that you can get from people who have different opinions from you. Twitter for me was a very accelerated process of getting the proper reflections of where I was still overextending myself trying to fix people. Mm -hmm. And also realizing that I do have some cool things to say and I do have, it's two things. I've got some really uh, keen insights that could help people. And I also have a thing going on in me where I try too hard yeah. to prove my point to yeah, people yeah. as yeah. if there's something to fundamentally gain from doing that. Right. And I, it, it's coming from a pure place mostly, but there's a, also a sliver of where it's coming from. This is how I still seek to prove my own worthiness in this way. Yeah. Still seeking like to win the argument is like the fundamental trap of Twitter. 
Well, like, whether it's a good place or not, it's still an egotistical place. There is no way that you're going to be fulfilled if your intention is that you need to win this argument. Right back to infinite game. Like yeah. Twitter, it, I realized after a week on Twitter that Twitter is an infinite game. Mm -hmm. And people are approaching it in a finite way where they enter a thread. Their intention is, I'm going to win this argument in this right. thread. And right. it's just like a complete fucking black it's hole. It's why like, I'm so unwavering on dumbing down my tweets or like caving into some level of small criticism based on like the tone or uh my presence there it's just like why would i ever be inauthentic for something that's not going anywhere like this is a platform that i'll be judged on for decades to come i'm damn sure gonna ensure that like i'm doing it on my own terms that's the hard balance to discern though is like there is value in looking at how you're conveying information and seeing if you could make it more relatable i see that side yeah, of i it. understand that and then there's also value in not i don't want to use the word dumbing something down because it's a, it's a value judgment in itself but like there's also value in keeping an authentic voice that feels true to you so that the information you're conveying actually feels like it's coming from a truthful place yeah there's only so there's only so much that you can distort the thing you're about to say before it feels like it's almost manipulative in itself. Yeah, and I'm judging from like other other avenues too. It's like uh, you take you take your source for what it's worth. If I'm gonna go read a tweet by Russell Brand and I'm gonna go read a comparable tweet by um, Sam Harris, I know that the language is going to be very very different, but may convey the exact same point. And it's like I go into that knowing that, so it's like. If I'm not to the level of uh, taking any value from a Sam Harris, then I'm just going to follow more of the Russell Brand type who's going to speak to me on my level. But everybody doesn't need to be Russell Brand. Mm -hmm. We would be remiss if everybody just conformed to only speaking that level of simple language. And that's not even, uh, you know that's not even a shot at him because I think he's wildly intelligent. But you know he's a movie star who knows how to speak on the, on the level of the common folk. I think that what you end up with is a lot of different people who have a lot of different personality types who are either oriented towards the good faith or bad faith approach. Yeah. And the reason that it's awesome to have all of these different types of good faith people is it gives people a chance to basically align with one that resonates that you can sort of digest that information more easily than other people. Mm -hmm. The mistake that the well-intended entrepreneur makes is to think that like, it's a problem if everybody doesn't understand right, him. Right. That's just like, bro, it's it's not anything like to literally see that to recognize like fully that people are literally not able to, to they're not able to connect with you in a certain way. Like people are not going to connect with everyone. Right. People are going to connect with people who are on their type of wavelength and speak a similar type of language and syncopation. Like it's subtle, dude. Like there's there are literally undertones of a Twitter post that you can cultivate a new personality by matching. Like literally the amount of words and the type of words that you use in Twitter and the amount of syllables, you can change your entire persona just by putting attention on that. And that can be fun. Like yeah. for a minute, that can be fun. And sometimes you can play with that and be like, who am I today on Twitter? Am I going to be the blunt coach? Or am I going to be the empathetic guy who uses emojis? Like it's fun to sort of play around with who can I relate with by and being. And I think we all have those different striations of personality. Like some of some of the the stuff that I put out that gets the most traction is just like my dry humorous side. What I really loved about the way that the Bit B Cash thing went down, and 
I don't have any hard feelings towards that company at all about what happened. What I wanted from that whole thing was a complete picture to be painted, mm -hmm. which is what my posts were trying to do. For anybody who didn't see it, it was basically the gist of it was that there was a lot of um, there was a lot of flack thrown at you for playing a very very non theoretical hand that they thought is below the threshold of what a winning player should be doing. Like there's certain things there's certain things that a winning player should never do. Was right, the right. was the initial uh, gist of the post, and the post started off by saying like gonna throw. <laughs> What did, like gonna drop some bombs on Berkey or something like, something gonna, like that. gonna fire shots? Yeah, gonna fire which shots. as soon as a post starts like that, you know it's negatively oriented. Mm. Um, but what I loved about that thread was that Christy, influencer in the poker community, I forget oh, her last right. name. I think it was her. She yeah. came in and she said something like, she said something to the vibe of like, I'm not even really reading what's going on literally in this thread, but like. <laughs> She made it very important to say that like the angle that this company was coming from in the post was so much more important than whatever they were trying to prove. Yeah, that's something that somebody who understands infinite mindset Agreed. will say. Yeah, and I was happy to see like I was surprised to see how many people piggybacked that perspective and were like, you know what, like no matter if you guys are right or wrong or if Berkey misplayed this hand, it's really fucking gross for you to take that angle and that shit's not gonna work. Yeah. And I think it's it's also really important to to be able to instantly forgive a mistake in the other party when they do take the finite competitive approach. Yeah. Because if we don't forgive quickly, we fall into the trap of being competitive. Agreed. And yeah. And honestly, like uh, I I d didn't even have ill will when they fired off the tweet. Uh, if 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 you notice, like my first response was something to the effect of like, "You're right. My logic wasn't sound, and this was a bit punty." Um, you know, I, I'm, I'll be very quick to own up to my mistakes and I actually look forward to at some point, probably, hopefully they come to Vegas for the summer or whatever, uh, sitting down with them. I, you know, pads is a great dude. I trust him empirically with his, uh, judgment of character. So, uh, I have no ill will towards them. Um, what I guess I took away from the thread and it speaks a little bit to this, uh, desire for more collaboration is that we still have these two worlds that are just colliding in poker and it's muddling all of the messaging that's getting out to the masses. And it's a big problem in the sense that he's right in a vacuum. I can never do what I do and call myself a professional or call myself a coach or anything of that nature, right? That hand in and of itself is losing X amount of dollars in a vacuum solver versus solver type gameplay. Like there's just no way to make it profitable. But we have to some point acknowledge we're not playing in a vacuum. And perhaps I'm a little bit better at understanding my surroundings than an AI machine would be that's given absolutely no variables to take into context. And even if you're not, like, let's just say you're not even right. good at it. Yeah. Just to throw you under the bus. No, it's like, fair. Worst case scenario, you're not good at it, but it still doesn't change the fact that it's true. Right. We have to acknowledge that there's an in-game dynamic to this that works against, it doesn't even, okay, this is the point, I think. Right now, what you're saying is true. The industry conflicts in the sense that they think that GTO is opposite exploitative. Mm -hmm. We need to start seeing it as like a spectrum. It's a spectrum, 100%. And once that happens, once there's actually that, that connection of the dots mm -hmm. that we've been fighting about 
something. It's almost like it's the dark side of the moon completely not acknowledging that the light side of the moon exists. Well, meanwhile, there's part of the same, they're part of the same object. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think that this is uh, something that is starting to shift ever so slightly. And it's why I'm really pumped to try to find like more footing with this messaging. So I think like the Finding Equilibrium uh, YouTube channel is doing a fantastic job of uh, kind of like curating a, a more holistic message. Uh, I thought he was very fair in his analysis of both the Poker Out Loud videos. But what he really tapped into was conti continually doubling back to the fact that perhaps under certain dynamics, these things aren't necessarily as bad as the vacuum scenario would present. And I think that that's really critical because ultimately, uh, if we strip this down to the most simplistic form, right? Everybody's getting super fired up about the fact that Munker Solver exists now and we can just look at preflop ranges by position. What I don't think a lot of them understand, or at least what I don't think the masses understand, maybe the people at the top do, is that the way that Munker is arriving at these solutions is it's taking a solver and playing it against itself from every single position and just running infinite iterations until it realizes like where the, the break-even points are, right? So of course, it's going to be much more polar in nature and you know value position highly. But when you sit in game, any game, I don't even care if we're talking about online where I think like the edges are small, you are not playing against a comparable foe in each and every position. There are people who are better than you. There are people who are worse than you. And just those little iotas of skill and errors that they're going to make are going to drastically change what the equilibrium looks like. And we're simply talking about one, you know, pseudo solve street of preflop. When you start to add the complexity of depth, multiple streets, the human uh, element of being risk averse, you'll start to see some very wild shit happening over and over and over again. If Jack had had a hand like Ace X suited, I don't think he folds there, not often, but at some frequency, he probably makes errors, right? We don't know what we don't know. And that is a lot right now by comparison to what we think we know. So what's our point behind this? So the point that I'm trying to make is that the more that we're able to find middle ground, right? The, the more we, the more we're able to acknowledge that both sides have a level of skill, talent, et cetera, and that a middle ground absolutely exists, but we're willing to stay in our lanes. Like I'm not at all trying to say that I could go beat stars 200, 400. And the irony is like, whenever there's a lot of pushback, it's just like, this guy's a joke, bro. He couldn't even beat stars NL 1K. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, maybe I could if I put in the time and effort, but that's not my arena. Like I'm playing $100,000 buy-in live cash games. Why the fuck would I fuck around with online 1K max? You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, if we acknowledge that that crossover doesn't necessarily have to exist in the sense that we're able to just transfer into each other's realms, but that there's a massive middle ground that is going unexplored and that's doing a detriment to everybody who's trying to push this game forward. Uh, I think we'll start to actually meld really strong-minded people together. And I think like Fedor was a great example of this, but he just wasn't very public or outward with it. Fedor, like um, by the time he launched the Poker Code course, he did it kind of on the back of I'm going to give you all my live exploitative reads correlated to uh, equilibriums. Now, 
I saw the course. It wasn't like anything mind blowing, but uh, to that end, that's a big risk for him to take. And if I don't think if he was out of poker, I think if he was still in poker, he wouldn't have done it. Not because it makes him exploitable, but because it makes him uh, easily criticized by the arena that he used to dominate, which is online poker. The problem that I still have with the complete picture being painted is that I think very, very few people in the industry are actually able to paint that picture unbiasedly. Mm-hmm. I think Finding Equilibrium is probably one of the guys that's doing the best job of it right now. And in even in that video, um, I think it was the one where we played like Super Street, like yeah. ridiculous yeah. street. Like I'm way out of line in that hand. The vibe that I got from the way that he framed that video, and maybe he did this intentionally or maybe it was just a subtle bias, was that exploitative poker, while it can be valid, is the fastest way to expose yourself to exploits. Yeah. The problem with that frame from a collective awareness point is that it's not actually going to be received in a in a balanced way by the by the viewer. The viewer is going to hear that sentence and parse that into a bucket of exploitative poker is safe or unsafe. Yeah. And when I read through the comments, which was the only thing I was really interested in, it sort of echoed this concern that I had. Well, there was most of the people were in the camp of like, this is why Explo is not good and not safe. And it's because when you see something that exposes you, you have to get on the offense or the defense. It's like, there's no other way to go about it. And the only way you can balance that and see that offensive is potentially safe is if you have vision, statistical vision over the imbalance of the market. For instance, my response to this would be very simple. If you actually saw how much the market is imbalanced, I'll just leave it at that, like aggregately imbalanced, Mm -hmm. you would no longer view aggressive, I just gave it away, but like y'all know anyway, you would no longer view aggressive play as unsafe and and risky. You would actually view a, okay, this this is such a big point that needs to get made. On the spectrum, when I hear people say GTO play is best, all they're really saying is that they've realized that GTO performs better than a than a more passive strategy. Right. Like that's all that's right. really happening GTO in my mind here. GTO gets into a level of aggression that, that actually that actually maps well against the pool. Yeah. Now also it will play well in a vacuum too, yeah. but like realistically the reason that this is better than what a risk averse guy is doing is because it's more aggressive. Mm-hmm. GTO is more aggressive and then beyond that there is incentive. There's a framework for bluffing if you're studying at equilibrium or, or in a vacuum scenario, right? Most people are coming from, like you're saying, this more passive framework where they're only examining the game through the value lens. And that in and of itself makes them super exploitable. Now, because they're playing against human actors, they often don't get exploited enough. People don't make tight enough folds or uh, you know, surrender often enough. But the, the whole thing that I'm trying to arrive at and uh, I think like the the best way to to frame it finally is the next video that Finding Equilibrium put out was one where Linus Love was playing three handed, and if you watch the video, th- this this is awesome to me. Uh, Linus squeezes so button opens small blind calls. Linus squeezes with an, a hand that the solver doesn't approve. He then flops bottom pair and C bets a board that the solver wants him to check back. He then checks back a turn that the solver wants him to bluff. 
and then finally he arrives at a river call off where he he gets stacked uh that the solver wanted him to call off so in accordance to equilibrium he made exactly one decision of all of them correctly and it was the most expensive one the most important one in his defense <laughs> right yeah um yeah but i mean it's debatable like with the with the framework because he made so many uh exploitative decisions up until that point it stands to reason that following equilibrium when he does arrive at the final river decision is probably going to be incorrect also because like so much has changed you know what i mean like uh the the response is now so different that it's probably exploitative too in some regards just because you led them down this certain path but the whole point i'm trying to make is if you listen to the messaging of the video finding equilibrium is like looking for reasons to clarify that this is a GTO play that uh, Linus could potentially be making. In in the sense that, you know, like he's just by the community relished as the bot or or the one who's closest to playing Equilibrium all the time. Uh, in the new upswing course, um, I can't remember the kid's name who made it, but he did an interview with Ingram and he was basically saying that like- Kanu? He, yeah. Yeah, okay. He was saying that like he felt a little guilty that- uh, part of the course was a quote unquote, how to beat Linus section. Mm. And they dissected a bunch of his hands. He's like, when I went into it, I expected him to just be like a solver and just like spat out the outputs and play pretty much accordingly, but he's hyper exploitative. And now I've kind of like put that analysis out there for the world to see. We're all still operating on the exact same spectrum. It's just that this mentality where there is data is that if you're not pursuant if you're not pursuing the equilibrium, you're wrong and you're bad. Where there's lacking data, we're of the mindset of if you are trying to follow this pseudo god that we're not good at employing yet, then you're wrong and you're bad. What do you mean when you say lacking data? In the live realm, we're just we we just okay, don't have okay, that okay. data. Yeah, the the most important part to close this little loop, I think, is that if you truly understood that there is a spectrum of aggressiveness for lack of a better way to simplify it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm talking about both the frequency at which people call and bluff. Sure. I'm just lumping those both together as either aggressive or passive. Yeah. GTO is better than totally risk averse passive. Mm -hmm. And because the market is passive, statistically proven, aggressive exploits actually perform better than GTO. The only community objection to this is that this is not sustainable. Right. And from that point, we need to honor the fact that higher stakes games with more observant opponents require you to inject more resilience into an exploitative strategy. That means you gear it back a little bit towards GTO yep. and you play with where that, you, you play with fire there. You, sure. you try to find where that line actually is. And that's an art, I feel like. You, you know what I find problematic though with that messaging? Because that, that that's being broadcast out to you know, whatever, 100,000 people who are following closely along. The problem I find with that messaging is if we were to believe what they're saying as to being correct, then we are moments away from the game expiring altogether, right? Because they're advocating for poker snowy. They're advocating for every environment to just become snowy and now only make money from some actor who sits that isn't within the, the the construct yeah i see what you're saying and i don't believe that would ever happen because in order for that to in order for that end of 
poker scenario to occur where everybody gets to equilibrium Mm -hmm. everybody would have to be capable of playing at perfect equilibrium the problem is that people have mindset issues not even a problem just the reality is that people have mindset issues over 80 percent of the pool is risk averse right like statistically you train enough people to understand like putting them in a bucket you either are over aggressive or you're risk averse four to five people or more are risk averse and because of that the pool tips passive and as long as the pool tips passive, there will always be incentive to play an exploitatively aggressive strategy. Yep. I mean, I wholeheartedly agree, obviously. Um, but there was one last point um, that I wanted to make about that, jumping off of what you said at the end. And now I can't remember it. At the end with the- Oh, uh, which, which is that the reason that nobody will get to perfect and that the, and even if everybody strives for it because they think dogmatically this is what has to happen, this is what's already happening with people who think that they're playing GTO. Right. I would argue that the vast majority of the very winning players in today's market that think that they're playing GTO or something close to it are actually just over-aggressive 100%. people by nature who haven't realized yet that every time they think they're rolling and mixing a strategy at a perfect rate, they're actually overshooting it and becoming yep. more aggressive and that naturally exploits the market. Yeah. And also the the other problem or I guess the other acknowledgement of like why uh, we may float somewhere in the orbit of equilibrium, but we're never going to get there is because it's conditional. And I don't understand. It blows my mind how this isn't discussed more often, but everything is the equilibrium changes based on the parameters that are set. So without full knowledge of of your opponent's counter strategy, if you're only conditioning your strategy towards what the optimal counter would be, you have to be setting yourself up in a scenario where either equilibriums are going to change, which I think will occur more so at depth, because now all of a sudden, um, maybe maybe equilibrium is the wrong terminology here, but let's say incentives will change, right? Uh, especially like once you reach depth, the the more that your opponents are going to be aggressing at those depths where they're ignoring stack off thresholds and equity thresholds necessary to invest large sums of money, the more EV that's going to be exchanged uh, by the strategy that is trying to combat them through a vacuum scenario. So I guess like in my mind, the extreme example of this is uh, somebody who's willing to stack off with one pair for like 500 big blinds, right? be it queen's pre-flop or just like top pair, top kicker, post-flop. The more that you run into that opponent, the more likely he is going to trend heavily towards the side of aggression. And also the more EV he's going to naturally just like bleed through large bet sizes and, uh, you know, assumingly like aggressive play. If you try to combat that by having like perfectly balanced ranges that aren't acknowledging that he's going to put you in a world of hurt because you're unwilling to stack off 500 big blinds with top pair, top kick. And now all of a sudden, some of your strongest hands are just going to continually get allocated into bluff catching. Then you are going to find yourself not just leaving Eevee on the table, but potentially cornered in a scenario where a weaker opponent than you is going to take short-term advantage. Because you're basically defaulting risk averse? Yeah without realizing or because you think you're following a model that's not even accurate to begin with well so i think it's a i think it's a a subtle realization i think people will acknowledge or will see in real time that somebody's over aggressing and so now they'll disobey 
what their aggressive strategy is at equilibrium and they'll lean into the passive one, mm -hmm. right? So if they're in spots where it's like, okay, this is a, a bet, uh, you know, 65% of the time and a check 35% of the time, they may result in flipping those numbers because they recognize if, if they check, this guy will aggress. And now all of a sudden, like their bluff catchers go way up in value because he's too wide, et cetera, et cetera. But they've, but, but entering through that tree, they'll find themselves now at the ultimate decision point on the river where they're facing like a 300 big blind shove and they're just holding like one pair. And then when that happens, they make the big mistake. I, I personally think that uh, from what I've seen, people will trend then to default to what the equilibrium says, which is don't stack off with one pair. In which case they would be overfolding at yes. that point. Yeah. That sounds consistent with what the data says. Yeah. I guess I just want to wrap with, uh, give me a little insight as to what your first half of the year looks like. I'm not going to put you on the, on the clock for giving me a 12 month outlook. But. Sure. Sure. Uh, so I just started doing these free consults and I'm really enjoying them. Um, I feel like something is going to develop from that. I'm not sure if it's going to be that I end up being uh, some sort of mindset coach like Elliot Rowe type thing. Um, but I do know that I've never felt more relaxed and at peace than when I'm doing these consults. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about it is like, uh, I think this is going to be most of my year. Somehow something's going to spiral out of this because I'm no longer head technical strategist on the team. My brother took that job over and he's better at it than I am. Yeah. Um, so I'm basically heading into elite mindset work, focusing almost all my energy on how to build out the community in a more, uh, in a way that's like flourishing more. And mm. a lot of that is just planning team trips and, and, and meeting up with the guys in person. And then the rest of it is me trying to cultivate this, this mindset passion on consults that I I've recently discovered is like way more fulfilling to me than any winning poker session I could ever have. Do you find it to be challenging that that's difficult to scale? I don't know if it is yet. I mean, I put one flare out on Twitter and Instagram and 25 people flooded in saying we'd be more than honored to have this opportunity. And by speaking, I, I know I'm giving it away for free. Like, obviously, I'm going to get a lot of, of yeah, replies. I wasn't thinking about uh, getting enough people. I was thinking more the opposite, that you only have so much time. Oh, I, I see. Um, well, for the first time, I feel like this is giving me energy and not taking. Yeah. Where like, as as much as I had a passion for poker, there was a stress aspect behind it that I was never able to fully eliminate for some reason. And I think that was because it was always still, I never got to that perfect uncompetitive place with poker. Um, and so part of me feels like, you know, there, there's still a reason for me to keep playing and perfectly balance that, that intent to full purity and then this other thing is staring me right in the face and it offers people immediate value yep. and there seems to be some sort of uh some sort of drift in that pulling me in that direction that feels like that's just it's almost like how insistent do you have to be after you go through enough iterations of life and you realize that like damn the thing that was most relevant was the thing that was right in front of my face yeah and that's what i feel like with this it's like these calls are extremely just potent. Like, and the the strangest part about them is like, I'm just going to turn this over to you and, and see how far apart we are on this. 
how on, an, on a one-hour consult with somebody you've never met yeah. with the topic being i'm here to help you with whatever career shit you're going through and advice what do you think the breakdown is between how much they speak and i speak in that one hour uh I would or, say, or, or let me rephrase it what do you think the optimal breakdown is i would say it's probably somewhere between like 70 30 80 20 they speak i think it's closer to like 12 to 15 that i'm speaking right now yeah. and i was it's which surprised me because i'm surprised you even went as low as 80 20 but like i think what you're realizing oh, i've just done this a lot people need to talk about their yeah. shit like people who are taking these consults really really want to just air it out and, and well it's and, not even just that they don't have those thoughts formulated they can't just come and say like okay here's my burden in a quick 500 words now fix me but and and that's important i think because what it's showing is that where the coach has the intention or like if you go in with a starting intention it's like okay this is going to be a back and forth conversation you're going to miss so much opportunity to gather the actual information that you need to give that person proper advice mm -hmm. but proper i just mean like this, this is a very simple process and i've only done a handful of these so far with strangers i mean i've done a lot before but not where i'm talking this little yeah so it's almost like the conversation I'm for the first 15 minutes of the conversation, I might say like five words. I'm not even kidding. Yeah. Like I tell, I, I tell them, here's what we're doing. I want to hear what you're going through. And through that process, I've, I literally feel like I'm just like harnessing energy for 15 minutes straight until I gather enough that I can either ask another question or I already have what I need. And I can say, you said this, this, and this, and that shows me this is what your real passion is. This is what you really like to do. We got to figure out how you can be doing more of this. Yeah. And it's not even that I've, it, I'm not even telling them that, like that I think this is going to save you if you go do this thing that you're passionate about. I'm well aware they might fail at it. But the reason that I, that I think it's correct to send somebody on the path that they feel passionate about is because through the passionate experience, you're going to learn the most about yourself. You'll also be the most resilient. And, and the resilience actually converts back into developing more perspective for the next iteration right. of your approach. Uh, are you familiar with root cause analysis? No. Okay, so essentially like what it is is, uh, again, it's like the framework from, from which we develop Solve for Why. Uh, quite frequently, we're very efficient problem solvers as human beings, right? It's how we've gotten this far. So largely speaking up until, you know, the second or third industrial revolution, we've been presented a problem. We look at it and say, what's the problem? How can I address it? And we try to find the simplest, most optimized way to do it uh, under those terms. So it's, uh, you know, we, we're, we're hungry, we're famining out here. Um, how do I fix that? It's like, well, I start killing animals. It's like, okay, well then the meat spoils. How do I fix that? Well, I create fire, right? And we just go down that path. Mm. It doesn't work anymore. We're, we're too technologically advanced. The problems are much deeper. It's like, why does world hunger exist? You know, these are big questions to ask. And to get to root cause, you go through root cause analysis processes. So you'll be presented a simple problem. Like uh, I saw a homeless person on the corner today and I wanted to help. And it's like, okay, well, let's dig in a little bit further. And you just start to pose questions mm. that gets to the root cause, which is actually why are people homeless yeah, yeah. as a whole? This is actually the most intuitive thing to me. And I, people tell me it's... I've heard it termed meta-analysis. Yeah, same. Yeah. I mean, the fact is you, you're mostly going to listen and ask follow-up questions to keep leading them down a path until you get to the real root of the hurt, mm -hmm. 
because they're going to come on the surface and say like, my girlfriend left me, I'm heartbroken over it, yada, yada, yada. And like, sure, that's true. But if you keep probing further and further and further, what you'll find is that like, they've never had a stable relationship. And you know, it's, it's this much deeper thing rooted inside of them that's leading to self-sabotage. What I like about these the most is that I'm aware that those issues are in play if they open up about them. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that I can draw a line for better or worse. Like it just feels like my skill set is to be able to draw the line where I'm not going to try to fix your family life or any of that sure. shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm here to give you logistical advice on how you can start to cultivate a life that's more exciting and passionate without putting yourself in more of a fucking financial hole. Because yeah. a lot of these people, the, they want to do the thing that they feel like they're excited to do. For a lot of them, it's like, I just want to play poker more, Yeah. but I have this part-time job. Yep. Um, and my advice is keep the part-time job and slowly take hours away from your part-time job and add them to poker as things go better. It's like, it's always a gradient, uh, it's always gradient advice. Yep. Because the problem with most people trying to solve their life is they're doing it in a binary way. It's like, I'm in trouble, and so I have to flip everything around completely, and then that causes more distortion, and then you well, It's also results-oriented thinking versus process-oriented. If you give gradient advice, you're laying out a process. Right. They have a path where they can think about each step along the way, and they have checkpoints. There's checks and balances where now they can kind of analyze and say like, okay, this is going better than I thought. This is going worse than I thought. I'm going to need to scale back. I can scale forward, et cetera. But if you just look at results oriented, where it's like, I'm doing this thing, but I want this other thing. How do I flip flop? Mm -hmm. It's just like, you're missing everything that, that matters. Yeah, you're missing the actual cultivation of being passionate towards something, which is real. it's so cliche, it's but- It's the sweat equity. You this know? is where the real fulfillment is. It's like actually acknowledging that I like to do this thing more than this thing. And I'm having enough faith to be able to put my attention on cultivating the thing that I like to do more. Mm. So I don't know where this is heading. And I agree that like, you know, I only have so many hours in a day. How many phone calls can I possibly do? But um, yeah, one thing that's standing out to me a ton is like, I would love to try to scale this into uh, something where doing it on the poker side of things ends up being my proof of concept. Yeah. And then I can just go into a broader arena with it and work with professional athletes or something, some yeah. some other performance demographic where, um, where my poker work, no matter how much it monetized, it yeah, no matter how you know, no matter how much it monetized or or how much acclaim I get off of it, accolades, yeah, yeah, no matter what the accolades, like I just feel like it's preparing me to be able to do this uh, on a scale that's a little bit more. Um, not even profound, but just like a little bit more elite because I, I watched someone that, that does this, uh, I sent it to hunt. I was like, I really think that like this type of job is what I'm headed toward. This guy works with professional athletes. And one thing that he said that resonated was like the cool thing about working with elite athletes is that you get tangible results. Yeah. Cause like you're working with a baseball player, that guy starts hitting more home runs and it's like, well, we're doing, unless it's variance, which it could be, we're probably but doing something. But it's also, something. you can, you can bring in framework to variance, which is very important, especially for the mental side in a sport like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand variance deeply whenever I was playing baseball and, uh, falling into the trap of luck versus unluck or, or lucky versus unlucky that, that type of mindset. It's really, really, really damning, especially when you're suiting up every single day for yeah. like 80 straight days. I can imagine. So yeah, I, I hope to make that more um, of the first half of my year and the rest of it 
is going to be just all about cultivating community vibes and we're expanding the company and and all good things i'm really looking forward to to, to 2020 i think it's going to be I think it's going to be the most challenging, but also the most rewarding, which yeah. I think is the way it should be. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm right there with you. I'm kind of getting to experience some of these things myself. I just went to San Francisco last week, uh, and I got to oversee a leadership meeting um, for a finance institution where it was a team of nine uh, that essentially it was the hierarchy of one person oversaw this team of nine, this team of nine oversaw a team of, you know, 50 or so um where they each individually had a collection and uh you know in in a three or four hour meeting it was just like me doing a lot of listening and just recognizing that they're not cohesive and i think it was just very simple things like not recognizing how much overlap there was between each of their divisions and most importantly not recognizing uh, like, you know, simple psychological things in the sense that like, they don't all communicate the same. Mm. So like there was one person who was just like the clear leader of the nine and he brunted the, the most of the work and, you know, he took on a lot of the responsibility and stuff like that. But with that comes a lot of dismissiveness because his time's precious. He's busy. He's overseeing a big team and all this other stuff. So he can't really deal with the day in day out conflict and the, and the, the small shit and stuff like that. And then there was another person who, uh, you know, was like in charge of the numbers and the data and stuff like that, who was also like a big personality and was just uh, a lot more uh, of a dictator in the way where it's just like, okay, this is what I need. I'm going to delegate. And otherwise, like I'm unavailable. And then there were a lot of others that were just kind of like staying in their lane. They were either listening type or they were super like linear in their thinking where it's like, and I need protocols. Mm. If I don't get protocols, I don't know like how I'm going to structure this. But ultimately what it, it collapsed in on was eventually none of them became leaders and they were all just waiting to be delegated to from the one person at the mm. top who needs to be innovative, right? He needs to be moving big pieces and remain innovative and not deal with the day-to-day -day bullshit of like, hey, here's your task list for today. Here's your task list for, you know what I mean? Like that can't be his job. He's not a manager. He's, he's a, a higher up. Right. Uh, and yeah, it was really eye-opening to like see that even in corporate America, the same problems and the same uh, oversights and, and mentalities and lack of communication just persist. And, you know, coming from somebody who started a small business, speaking to somebody who started a small business, it's like you feel like you're caught in the trap that nobody else can understand. Yeah, and I'm happy that we... Uh... Do you remember in Infinite Game how they coined, instead of CEO, CVO, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chief Visionary Officer? Yeah. As tacky as that is, like I kind of relate to that more than than the CEO position. Yeah, because like at in this my stage, mind, at least. yeah, in my mind, the CEO or like the executive uh, of that type is like a colonel in the military, mm. or just barking orders to his, his chain of command, and then they bark orders, and they bark and. That doesn't help to empower anybody, mm. you know. So it was it was nice. Uh, there was there was a lot of talk of like just taking ownership, and uh, you know, they were hungry. That was the craziest part, is it wasn't they were collapsing inward and waiting for delegation because they didn't care or because uh, they were weak passive types. They were hungry. They wanted to they wanted to move up the food chain and they wanted to overperform. Uh, specifically individually but certainly as a team cohesively as well they just they lack all, the tools to be able to do that, they all speak really. different languages yeah. you know
It's really tough, man, and I don't think it's a problem that I don't think it's a problem that the innovator can solve for sure. Like no. you can give some perspective on how we're going to approach that problem, but it's too much to deal with to basically hold the ship together. Well, the completely. basic solve is like I'll just take all this on my shoulders, mm-hmm. and now I'll just create this hierarchy chain of command where it's like I'm now in charge of delegating, and when the delegation fails, uh, I I start to to go after whoever's fault it is yeah. and that's the exact opposite of extreme ownership uh the example that i gave in real time which i thought was pretty nice uh from a real world perspective was uh i compared the cleveland browns to the pittsburgh steelers and in uh i guess like 54 years since the first super bowl um cleveland's never been to the super bowl over the last uh or i guess like over that time frame they've had something like i think like 10 or 12 head coaches and uh, over the last, I think it was 20 years, they've had 33 starting quarterbacks. Mm. And if you look at Pittsburgh, over the last 20 years, they've had like three starting quarterbacks. <laughs> they've had two coaches and they've only had three in franchise history. So it was just like, I, I posed the question. I was like, what do you guys take from this? And most of the responses were um, that Pittsburgh had good personnel. And that they had they had guys who were able to lead, and that Cleveland lacked that leadership at the bottom. And I said, "Well, why do you think that is?" And they were just like, "Just the wrong fit, mm-hmm. you know, just the wrong people." I was like, "Bill Belichick was the head coach of Cleveland Browns. Why did he have success in New England and not there?" Mm-hmm. And it didn't really click. And it's like Robert Kraft, the Roonies. These are these are football royalty, and the reason they are in the position that they are, where they've owned their teams forever, they've had all this success, six Super Bowls each is because at the top, the ownership level, they take the extreme ownership. They don't fire a coach every time there's a losing season. They don't sit a quarterback every time that there is is trouble in the field. You look at a guy like Jerry Jones, and it's the exact opposite, right? He just immediately is running through head coaches. He's trying to be the head coach. He's trying to be the scout. He's trying to be the GM right, and right. everything else from the ownership box. And it was like, the second you empower your next in command, they're then going to do the same to their team. Yeah, it reminds me, I, I heard this quote recently. It's something, maybe we can just end on this with like a fade out. If a flower doesn't bloom, you don't blame the flower. You blame the environment for not nurturing it with enough water and sunshine. I think Chewy said this on, it, if on he the did, last that's, podcast. That's messed up because I didn't hear him say it. Oh, man, it came funny. at me from two different books recently. Mm. But to your point, like you can't just go around firing everyone thinking that's the problem when really there's a cultural there's a cultural issue at the root of every team that's not performing and i think even if it needs to result in firings you have to assume first that it's not the person yeah you don't do your your due diligence in actually investigating whether or not like the soil of your company is promoting this type of behavior you don't even have a chance at identifying who's not a fit for the company. Right. 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 Yeah. There, there's a difference between insubordinates, which obviously deserves to be fired, versus uh, a leader not fulfilling their role. In which case, now you have to kind of question, like, how did they get empowered to begin with? You're not going to let me just end on that quote, are you? Are you gonna... it, it was recycled, man. I can't do it. We'll recycle the film back and then <laughs> put a little image on it of a flower and we'll fade out like this. Sure. I'm not sure if this exactly relates to this, but uh, just an anecdote that came to mind that I heard yesterday uh, is, you know, if you think of a a flower that's not blooming, it's not necessarily 
the flower's fault. It's it's the fault of the environment. Uh, all right, that's gonna wrap it for vlogcast number thirty four. Um, for those of you who are interested, we have another academy coming up in April. Uh, we are, I think, sixty five percent sold out for that one. Uh, we also have a five day MTT academy the week before the World Series begins. So please head over to our uh, site. Submit your application if you're interested. We'll be happy to get back to you. Nick, always a pleasure. I appreciate you coming and uh, derailing this thing per usual. Put the flower back on. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap. See you guys. <laughs>